Welcome back, listeners, to a new episode of JCOS Presents Sound Sociology in conversation with. And today I'm in conversation with Layla Curtis. Hello. Hello. It's good to have you on the podcast. It's good to be here. Um, I thought how hard it would be to try and link sociology and maths. And uh, I was scratching my mind, scratching my brain, going, it's never going to work, it's never going to work maths and sociology how on earth do you link these two together um and i'm really glad you approached me to to actually come up with some really good ideas of how these two subjects link together and and a lot of our listeners will probably think how they never link but we're going to try and prove you wrong today ladies and gents uh, and try and um show you the importance of maths within a sociological framework um First of all, though, do you want to tell us uh, briefly um, why maths and why you have a passion for the subject? Mm. Um, well, I, when I was younger, I always wanted to be an environmental statistician. Um, so in, in informal language, uh, looking after things that are all eco-friendly in companies with maths. Um, I got that job and absolutely hated it. <laughs> Um, and I went back for my third year in uni because the job that I got was um, in between in between the second and third year. So I quit that, went straight back to for my third year um, in maths and stats. And I just remember looking around the room, and half the people were asleep. And I thought, you're paying nine grand for this plus accommodation fees, like plus like everything else. And I thought, how? How has it gone so wrong for people that they have studied maths from age five, or you know, even earlier, but not in education, from age five all the way up until now, where they're falling asleep in a lecture because they don't actually want to be here and they're willing to pay this amount for it? Like, why are they here? Why do people hate maths so much, and yet they're still willing to study for it? And that made me want to become a teacher. So when I came out of university, I went straight into teacher training. Now I'm in my fourth year of doing that in mathematics, and uh, since studying mathematics, I now also teach kibbutzer, and I've been trained um, as a specialist in, in kibbutzer curriculum. Fantastic. I think it's it's interesting um, for me the, the message that comes across here, and like from my point of view, is you've got to always have a passion for your subject, yeah. and like. Put, you know we learn these subjects we're, we've got to be enthused by it and we've got to look for how our subject just it becomes part of our everyday life and mm-hmm. you know the fact you were there saying you know you're looking at all these people in the lecture theatre and half of them are asleep <laughs> it's kind of like people you've got to do what you enjoy yeah. um, and you know when you enjoy it it doesn't become work it just becomes part of what you do yeah it's like you maximising flow state right like yep. always forgetting the time I'm always thinking, if I don't know what time it is, I'm doing the right thing right now <laughs> for my for my yeah. mental health. So I feel like that about work a lot when the, the time just goes from me and it's already the end of the day. And I just thought for these people falling asleep in the lecture theatre, they didn't mm. know what time it was, but for the wrong reasons. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, hopefully people, we're not going to um, hopefully put you to sleep during this episode. <laughs> um, we're going to kick off um, by trying to talk about how... Um, maths links with sociology and some of the overlapping stuff that we look at in GCSE sociology but my first question to you is um, why do you think there's a a love-hate relationship with maths? So I think there's probably three reasons I think the first one is um, in school I think we have that culture even even some maths teachers I speak to very uh, very often 
say to their students, oh, I know it's gonna be a boring lesson, or yes, I know you hate maths, but we have to do it, this kind of thing. It doesn't instill a passion for students to love maths. So I think even in school, we have this culture of it's okay to hate maths. Um, I think the second reason is that parents enforce this as well. So um, a large majority of parents, according to um, studies done on um, being proud of your children for different subjects, have found that parents actually don't really mind whether their child is okay with maths and often assume that their child will be very um, under average at maths if they were also under average, as if it's a genetic thing and you can't change it. Um, so I think there, there seems to be just at home and in school, this idea that first of all it's okay to hate maths, is actually a normal thing to hate maths, but also we don't need to like it and our parents won't be proud of us if we're good at it and our parents already think we're going to be bad at it. And then I think the third reason comes from just really not understanding, you know, this, the age old phrase, when am I going to use this in future, where kids have no idea what they're actually getting out of their math lessons and why it's relevant and how they're doing this stuff every day in real life. We're just putting it in a context where they answer it in an exam mm. all the time. So yeah, I think those are the main reasons. I think that, you know, speaking selfishly, speaking as someone who my perception of myself was I was not very good at maths. So I worked, I remember when I got put into set four for maths in year seven uh, out of six and the absolute shame I felt but because I was as motivated as I was, I um, I made sure I worked as hard as I could within that year to get moved out of the set. Oh. <laughs> because I, one, I knew I struggled with the subject, but two, I felt the pressure of being in a lowest, even as a an, a, an overthinking 11-year-old child, I had this um, notion in my head, you already struggle with the subject and you're, you're going to be around other people who struggle or already have a negative relationship with it so it's a slippery slope um and i think that this kind of love-hate relationship it, it brings a lot of fear into people's heads about what they can do and what they're capable of or what they're not capable of uh, it takes a, a very strong character to what you know yeah. to, to want to bring themselves um better themselves um so on that note of the this love-hate relationship what do you think schools get right in the teaching and delivering of maths but probably more importantly what do you think schools get wrong in the delivering and teaching of maths mm, you know i'd like to say i'd like to say that there's a lot that we do right but actually i think there's a very long way to go with it so more wrong than right but the main thing i think we do wrong is completely ignoring the role of self-esteem in mm how students feel about themselves and their maths ability and uh, more often than not I found that students who are not doing well in maths do not need maths intervention they need mental health intervention and to like and love themselves more and to be told that they are a resilient strong confident intelligent person so I think the main thing stopping schools from progressing with that is that math teachers are not trained in the psychological disadvantage to that love-hate love -hate relationship. And I found that so many of the students that make progress in my own classes or other people's classes when they're, they're talking about students progressing is that they have really given them that one-on-one -on -one attention to say, you are not what people tell you, you are not a, 
uh, bad at maths, you are a numbers person, everyone is a numbers person, you can do it, try and try again, you know, this is how this example would be in real life, um, and we're just doing it in a different context here, I think it's that like badgering them but in a positive way to say you are way more than you think you are. And I think missing that link is really crucial of a student's self-esteem and how they think about themselves in terms of maths. I, it's really stepping on the toes of uh, Carol Dweck's work and, and growth mindset, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's all about, um, I swear I walk past your classroom and I see that, that there's a lot of stuff with growth mindset. I swear I'm still walking <laughs> past your classroom. But, um, you know, it's the power of yet. You, yeah. Yeah. You, you, may not have, you may not be good at it yet. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's interesting as well, like this idea that you know, it's not to lambast school. Schools doing incredible hard work mm. in, in delivering all of the curriculum, but with maths, because there is this love hate relationship, yeah. it it it's more than just the delivering of the curriculum. It's also, as you put it, like there's also this um, probably more, for want of a better word, softer and fuzzier bit to it, yeah. which is raising people's self-esteem do you think there are any negative consequences of when that isn't being done right and how do we see it in the students we are teaching i think that the the main disadvantage of us not being able or trained to pay attention to that is that we miss out on really key moments that can completely change uh, someone's experience of themselves in maths and I think that it then further exacerbates their self-esteem problems and it can go into other subjects as well considering so many subjects use maths so it's almost like they walk out of the classroom the math classroom with a core identity of I'm not very clever um, because I think that we do in society associate a level of intelligence with well, how good are you at maths or how good do you feel at maths and those small nuances of simple things a student comes up to the board they answer a question they answer it wrong in that moment we either ask them to sit down and move on to another student or we say no you can do this the whole class claps for them yes you can do this and then you help them to see what the answer is then they get it right they sit down and they walk out of that classroom being like no i am clever and also i don't have to get things right so i think it's missing that that's the big disadvantage of those moments are so core to a student's identity and they take that with them to the next lesson whereas i feel like there are some subjects where students have said oh i'm not very good at geography or i'm not very good at this but it doesn't seem to hamper their self-esteem anywhere near as much if they if they can't they feel like they can't do that subject i mean it's interesting within sociology you're kind of almost touching on the ideas of labeling yeah um and you know within many a school you know subjects like maths are often setted um and it kind of raises them and again within sociology we would look at things like inside school factors and how that influences achievement but we're being even more specific here and talking about how does inside school factors affect the achievement of students in maths so i kind of wonder if we were to look at factors like labeling um, the impact of being in a higher set or a lower set the impact of then perceived expectations of a teacher teaching a higher or a lower set how much of an impact does that have or could it have on a student in terms of how they then get on in maths yeah very often the first thing that a student will come in um, and listeners will know this feeling all too well they come in and they say what set is this and then they look around at all the people in that set and they say right this is my ability i mean you could even have 
um, a student that mistakenly sat down in that set and would still label themselves completely differently because they walked into the, a class that, that wasn't where they were meant to be and they think they're meant to be there and immediately they think they're dumb. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I feel like the effect of that is that they then stop trying they stop believing that they can get to a right answer when they have a wrong answer and not only do they label themselves but everyone around is reinforcing that because they'll say oh i'm dumb i'm in this set because i'm dumb or um they'll say well of course we got it wrong we're in set four we're in set eight we're in set whatever so it creates like this whole dynamic this whole caution dynamic of we are the bad ones it's again my my brain is pinging off towards (laughs) um towards the work of uh becker who who was an interactionist and sociologist he he talks about labeling and he talks about more importantly the internalization of a label and how it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy Mm -hmm. um and you know it's an interesting question this which is should and i'm jumping down the line towards another question here <laughs> hope you don't mind it's it's um does setting still have a place in schools uh, when it comes to mass so ofsted have done some really interesting reports ofsted are the examining body of schools they have done some really interesting reports showing that when you put students together when you greet them group them together on perceived ability especially in terms of exam results um, what ends up by happening is that those lower sets are either special needs high anxiety students um, students with very difficult upbringings or difficulty making friends um, so those sorts of students are getting put together and really really what the accurate label would be is like highly anxious right you're in the highly anxious set and we're going to work with you on that because you're great and you should love yourself uh, they just see it as as set four so the internalization of that i think makes makes them associate all of their mental health issues with mass ability when it really shouldn't be like that it's uh, i mean this is where um I've had a conversation with a student a couple of days ago who didn't do particularly well on their on their end of year 12 mock and they could they said the irony of it said like we talk about how to change the education system yet here we are still doing a set down formal exam and and you know having these conversations is really groundbreaking because it gets us to think about well how else could we deliver it mm-hmm. you know on a pedagogical level on a curriculum level yeah. on a you know just on an everyday yeah. going about trying to deli- deliver your curriculum yeah. um are there any practical ways and I, I appreciate this is probably not one of the questions we had but are there any practical ways that a, a, if we had a classroom teacher listen to this or even if we have one of our students um, listening to this, that they could go about trying to help themselves in that maths lesson as a student or even a teacher who might be listening to it and going, how could they mm, help? Super interesting question. Yes, I think there are loads of ways. If um, a couple would stand out to me, I think the first one is this idea of metacognition, learning about learning. I think that self-awareness has such a great positive impact on our mental health is to be like, okay, realistically what does it mean for me that i um that i feel like i can't learn easily i feel like i'm dumb i feel like i'm this i'm i feel like i'm that actually researching that psychology and looking up even a basic google will give you these things um looking up 
about self, the self-fulfilling prophecy and labelling theory, having that self-awareness, I feel like, brings them away from it. And I've done that with some key stage four students that I've had. And now finally, when they get a great exam result, they say, oh, but I'm not moving sets, am I? Because I just don't care about that anymore. And the way that they've been able to help themselves is researching those things such as growth mindset. You don't have to stay at the ability that you think you are. Um, and is self-fulfilling prophecy. They say I'm this, I thought I was this, but I'm definitely not this. That's probably the number one thing that I think people could do to help themselves in maths. I mean, in life in general, right? That's what therapy is. Yeah, yeah. So, so essentially, maths therapy is looking, up, <laughs> is looking up those psychological theories to be like, why do I feel this way? And, and why is that not actually right? And as teachers, I think we should be teaching them that as well, is, hey, this is a psychological theory that's going to make you feel awful about being in set four. But you need to know that this is the benefit if you don't think like that and if you come away from that. I think it's it's so interesting, um, you know, obviously just to kind of root us back to our overarching question in the episode today, it's it's like the, you know, the relationship between maths and why it's a love-hate relationship, sorry. and it, you know, it's asking very difficult self-reflective questions of yourself in mm-hmm. in a subject that people already perceive as something they either hate yeah. or they really get. Yeah. Um, and that's a challenging conversation for you know an adult, let alone a child, to have with themselves. But it's a really important one to have um, and to understand how do you break certain habits mm-hmm. so you're not feeding into that self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to take a gear shift. Sure. Um, it kind of gets to think about um, the real life. You spoke about earlier about the real life applications. Sure. I, I, I'm wondering, do you have any examples of how students? I mean, I've written down here. Why do you? What do you think students think maths is in their real life? <laughs> I believe that students feel they are learning about certain math theories um, and methods so that they can apply it to a job in the future. Um, But actually, what maths is, is what they're doing in their everyday life. Their parent gives them some money to go to the shop and get snacks. Already there, you're (laughs) you're answering a GCSE exam question. Uh, Millie goes to the store and she has £10. She buys these things. How much change has she got left? Obviously, that's the very basic version of that question. But that can go all the way up to, I don't know, you, um, you have a house to buy and other finances and how are you going to be able to predict what those are going to be and you are using algebra and maths in those so just basic financial saving or um, shopping for instance you go into a shop you have a student discount something is 80 pounds or let's say 20 pounds and the shopkeeper says uh, okay that'll be 18 pounds please from a 20 pound dress something like this Um, and you need to you need to know whether that 15% discount has been taken off. If, if You'd be pretty upset if it went from 20 to 18 and that wasn't the discount that you asked for. And I know for sure there are a lot of students who very, very, um, have a very close relationship with their wardrobe yeah. and yeah, would be really upset. And they do that in their heads. They know when mm-hmm. someone has given them the wrong change. Yep. And these basic things is they say, well, we're not using maths in real life, but you're using it every single time you feel hard done by. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with with finances using it all the time i think that's a great example i loved it when we spoke up when you said it now and i remember when we were doing the pre-chat and i think that's such a great example especially like you know 
the podcast is aimed at, at students in the year 10 to year 13 I can't help but think of like a year 13 kid who's doing sociology who's who's kind of done maths forgot about it because yeah. uh, they've got their GC, they've got their grade five six whatever mm-hmm. but actually they go to university they get their own US card <laughs> and it's like yeah. anyway did you apply my my discount correctly <laughs> yeah, exactly. Miss River Island or Miss Top Top yeah, Shop exactly. with, although Top Shop doesn't exist anymore um okay um in terms of so that, that, that's kind of like thinking about how maths is applied in real life and I'm conscious that we're coming towards the end of the podcast um how does poor numeracy affect future life chances so poor numeracy I mean this is numeracy is their foundation skills and you'd think that the large majority of people would have that um but in another Ofsted report that they did recently, it was saying that actually half the working population have a primary school ability. This means that they can't do basic things such as shopping, budgeting, planning a trip even, uh, following a recipe. So we're saying half the working population have difficulty even multiplying up or dividing down a recipe to serve a certain amount of people. Um, And we found that the impact of that is that if you don't have good numeracy skills, that has been correlated and found a pattern alongside uh, likeliness of getting depression, uh, a reduced salary overall, reduced self-confidence. Um, they also found out things like you're twice as likely to get unemployed, um, you're twice as likely to be excluded from school. And they've also found that in adult prisons, three-fifths or 60% um, of adults in prisons have the numeracy skills of under an 11 year old so we're finding that people with numeracy skills are ending up becoming part of the criminal system or developing depression or lack of self-confidence and the reason why this is just getting worse as well is because even people in their career where they don't think that they need maths um, these people who are struggling with numeracy skills are avoiding job opportunities as well so often at times maybe some of the people listening okay well I'm not the person that's going to end up in prison so fine I'm just not going to listen to this bit but there's also those people who think that they're going to be really successful but hate maths and then they come to their they come to the job that they really want and uh, they were able to see that one in five people will avoid a job completely because it includes data analysis I mean it's so so sad that because I've literally had that conversation this week with an adult who has got a job they really want to go for, they've looked at the person spec and the job description, and there's something that talks about data analysis and going, I don't know what I'm gonna write really? about. Oh, that's such a shame. And and, and actually that's the real life application yeah. of, you know, limiting someone's life chances because of yeah. their relationship with maps. Yeah. And you know, listeners, this is where, you know, this is the beautiful thing about what I hope we're trying to do in the, in this series of podcasts showing the interdisciplinary nature yes. of of how everything overlaps yeah. you know in sociology we'll talk about the impact of life chances but actually even just you know teaching maths and your relationship with maths can then influence the life chances you don't have mm-hmm. um yeah sorry that's just really that's just really blown me away because literally i had that conversation with this person yesterday and you sat exactly there <laughs> where this person was and i'm going yeah, that's literally how that person felt. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so interesting. Um, we're, I'm going to have to start to wrap things up. Um, 
to finish off standard question do you have any recommended films books websites magazines that our listeners could engage with to get a little bit more interest in what we've spoken about today uh, yes I do um, a book I really really love is called Alex's Adventures in Numberland you'd think it was a completely maths focused book yeah <laughs> we're in a school we're in a school <laughs> you'd think it was a completely maths related book but actually it's about the history of mathematics um, it's a lot to do with sociology oh, wow. actually um, and how westernised culture has completely changed the way that we do maths contrary to our intuition as well so there are some um, intuitive math skills that we have as kids that are actually educated out of us when we come into primary school if we live in a, in a westernized society so um, that book is really really cool it goes into what tribes do and how they grow and they can't count so how do they count yeah. <laughs> how do they actually know what they've got and what they haven't and what they need so I'd recommend I'd recommend that book um, fantastic um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast Layla um, <laughs> listeners you've been listening to jcos presents sans sociology in conversation with i'll see you on the next episode